In a few moments, I'll read you the Bible reading for this evening. After that, I'll explain why one of the verses in this reading has got a particular significance for me. The reading is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. I would like to tell you about my uncle Harold. He was a very special person in my life, although I probably met him fewer than ten times in total before he died about 20 years ago. He was my mother's elder brother and was an itinerant evangelist in the Assemblies of God. That's the world's largest grouping of Pentecostal churches. Although he was English, he was for a time a pastor in the USA, but most of his ministry was spent in India. Although I can also remember that he addressed large Christian meetings as far apart as Poland and Australia. Most of what I knew about him was from my mother, who wrote to him regularly wherever he was in the world. He knew a great deal about me and my brother and sister from our mother's letters. Very occasionally he would come to visit us in our home near Reading. The first time I can remember him coming was when I was about four. This is very clear in my mind because of something which he did 
which as a four-year-old I found incredible. Telling us that because he did not buy us presents for Christmas or our birthdays, he wanted to buy my brother and me a gift each. And he took the two of us to the local village store in Woodley where we lived and told us both that we could choose anything in the shop. I was completely flummoxed by this. It was an extraordinary and unexpected generosity. As I was brought up after the Second World War in a time of austerity, make do and mend and hand-me-downs. Later in the day, back at home, I compared the dinky toy saloon car which I had chosen as my present with the much larger car transporter that my older brother had selected and realised that at six years old he was much more worldly wise than I was at age four. The next time Uncle Harold came I was about eight years old but he did not repeat the previous act of generosity. Instead, he gave me something which I came to realise which was of much more lasting value. It was my first grown-up Bible. It had a black leather cover, gilt-edged pages and a thumb index to find each book. Inside the cover he had written, To Richard from Uncle Harold, followed by the words of 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. At eight years old, these words were new to me and appeared at first sight to be a reiteration of my parents' familiar entreaties that I should work hard at school. But now it was saying that this was not just for my own benefit or to please my parents, but that God had an interest in this too. I used that Bible for a long time until it eventually fell apart and more modern versions took its place. So these words were regularly in front of me and I came to understand more of the meaning as the years went by. As a teenager I learnt to look at the context as well as just learning verses in isolation and I realised that this verse is part of Paul's many instructions in his two letters to his young protégé Timothy. Later versions replaced the word study with do your best, which I might have found something of a relief in my schoolboy days, but thinking about that now, it actually gives them a wider application than just academic study, extending to every aspect of life. I can't remember ever hearing a sermon on this verse, so I look forward to Tim sharing his thoughts with us tonight, (laughs) not just on the opening words, but on the whole verse in its context. I don't know where my modest dinky toy or indeed my brother's magnificent car transporter are now but I do know that my Uncle Harold was a man of God who gave me something at the age of eight which I still treasure in my mind nearly six decades later. Finally, for your amusement, here is a picture from 1975 showing my dad and my sister at the back and my mum, Uncle Harold, Christine and me in the front row. If you're employing a builder to do an extension, it's good to get one on the basis of a good recommendation. And when you do find a builder, it's good, important, to make sure that he follows the plans. The internet is full of tales of woe from people who have engaged builders who've done their own thing. One posting on Mumsnet contains a litany of complaints. The builder used metric rather than imperial bricks on an extension to a Victorian house. 
He made the bedroom smaller so it would be easier to install a loft ladder. He made the opening for a bifolding door too small. And he made the kitchen ceiling 20 centimetres too low so that none of the very expensive kitchen units would fit. Clearly the stuff of nightmares. Clearly not a builder who was keen to secure approval from this particular customer. A good workman will follow the plans correctly. That principle applies if you're a tradesman employed to do a job. It also applies to all of us when it comes to following God's purpose for our lives. Paul says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. But rather than giving us all an individual plan for our lives, God gives us what Paul refers to as the word of truth. What is that precisely? At first sight, it's obvious. The word of truth is the scriptures, which we have a responsibility to read, understand, and work out how to put them into practice in our lives. But which scriptures would Timothy have had? He wouldn't have had the New Testament as we know it, We can't simply assume that Paul meant, by the word of truth, the four Gospels and the Epistles and Revelation at the end. But Timothy would have had the Old Testament and a variety of sayings and teachings about Jesus and the Christian faith that would have formed the basis for his own teaching and conduct. And there are a number of those in the passage that Richard read to us. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my Gospel, Paul says. In that pithy saying, there is one of the the phrases he would have used to talk about who Jesus was and the importance of him. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David. Sums up so much about Jesus, the resurrection, who he is. And on the back of that, you can tell people the good news about Jesus. That would have been part of the word word of truth that Paul commends to Timothy. He also identifies what he says is a trustworthy saying in verses 11 to 13, and this probably too is part of the word of truth, part of the reservoir of tradition and truth that Christian preachers would have used. Here is a trustworthy saying, he says, if we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Some people think that might have been part of a Christian hymn. But it was part of the Christian tradition, the word of truth, that Timothy was called to teach and follow. And Paul tells him to keep on reminding the congregation about these things. It's a saying that spells out very clearly the need to stay faithful in terms of holding to our confession of Jesus. But he also warns about quarrelling about words. It's of no value, only ruins those people who listen, he says. Yet sometimes you, you think, well, how do we understand the word of truth? What does scripture actually mean? That last phrase in 2 Timothy 2.13 is a case in point. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. How do we understand that? Does it mean that Christ is faithful, even to the faithless, so that despite our lapses, he does not ultimately reject us. You can read it that way. 
If we're faithless, that doesn't matter because he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. You could take it that way. Or does it mean that he is faithful to the warning he's issued so that God's faithfulness makes it impossible for him to acknowledge those who've denied him? That ties in with the preceding word. If we disown him, he'll disown us. If we're faithless, he's going to stay true to what he says and that means we're in trouble. That is precisely the opposite meaning to the first one. One interpretation brings assurance, the other a stark warning. A third option is that God's faithfulness just stands in contrast to human faithlessness and so provides a model for us to follow and whatever else happens we can put our trust in God because he won't let us down. So you can see how and why, given such different possible interpretations of a reading, there was a tendency for discussion and sometimes debate and even argument to take place. And though Paul says that quarrelling about words only ruins those who listen, there does need to be a consideration of different points of view in order to arrive at a correct understanding of what a text means. And those kind of discussions have value if they are conducted with the common aim of searching after truth. I'm sure you've had discussions like that in your home groups. But when opinions become polarised and the disagreements become personal, then the results can be destructive. In its history, the church hasn't always got that right. As understanding of Christian doctrines developed and the orthodox point of view was thrashed out, there was a standard, uncharitable practice of formally pronouncing a curse on anyone who disagreed with what was established as the correct understanding of the truth. Paul clearly has strong views about the damage that is being caused by the erroneous teaching being put about by the likes of Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were going about telling people the resurrection's already happened. That kind of teaching was inherently destructive of faith. Exactly what they meant and why they said it is difficult to determine. Were they so influenced by the Greek culture in which they lived that they thought only the soul survived after death and there was no resurrection of the body? Did they believe that those who were baptised were already raised with Christ and that there was nothing more to look forward to for us? Were they saying that Christians were already living in the age to come and that's why they weren't allowed to get married or eat meat? We just don't know. We don't know enough. But Paul was concerned that some people's faith was being shipwrecked on the basis of this teaching. But, he says, those who truly belong to the Lord will not be led astray. God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. And that too, that inscription is also part of the word of truth. That's saying, this is something on which you can take your stand. This is a piece of Christian tradition that you can apply to your own lives. It's based from number 16. In number 16, the stories of the debates between Moses and Aaron over their leadership of the people. Korah and some 250 others have a go and say, you've got no business leading God's people, you're you're overstepping the mark, Uh, God hasn't particularly chosen you. Moses responds by saying, look, the Lord knows those who belong to him. And the Lord knows who is holy. That's where this text, the Lord knows those who are his, comes from. And Moses warns the congregation to stay away from Korah and his followers. He says, look, if the ground opens 
and swallows them up, Korah and all those with him, then that will be a sign that they have treated the Lord with contempt. As the whole congregation moves away, that is precisely what happens. The ground opens beneath them and swallows the whole company of those who rebelled against God's leaders. The Lord does indeed know those who are his. And it's quite likely that Paul still has this episode in mind in the second saying that he quotes there. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. There's a debate about what precise bit of the Old Testament Paul is talking about there, but likely it refers to this episode. If you're going to call on the name of the Lord, you turn away from wickedness, you distance yourself from those who are doing evil, you part company with them, in that way you stay holy to God and you leave them to follow their own wrong path. Where people are going off the rails in terms of what they believe, make sure you don't follow them. So this passage contains four elements of the word of truth. The gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. That's stuff about living, dying with Christ, living with him, endure, reigning with him, the danger of disowning him, the question about what happens if we're faithless. The Lord knows those who are his. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. All these sayings would be part of the reservoir of the word of truth that Timothy was called to make sure that he rightly divided it or rightly interpreted it or rightly applied it. 2 Timothy 2.15 is about keeping on track. You need to be a workman who rightly, correctly handles the word of truth, Paul says. Or in the King James Version, which was on the screen earlier, a workman rightly dividing the word of truth. The etymological meaning of the word is to cut in a straight line. It's used in that well-known verse from Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. That's the meaning of the word. Straight lines are important in the world of work. If you are a seamstress, or a dressmaker, or someone who works with any kind of materials, you need to be able to cut and sew in a straight line if your work is going to be of any value at all. If you want to sell it afterwards, straight lines are vital. Farmer needs to plough a field in a straight line. Carpenter needs to be able to cut in a straight line. Carpet fitter the same. Decorator needs to be able to paint in a straight line. Keeping a straight line can be the mark of a skilled workman. And so Timothy is called to be a skilled workman who is keen to have God's approval and to have no reason to be ashamed of his work. This metaphor from the world of work, keeping a straight line, is applied to the way in which he engages with the word of truth. What's he do with it exactly? The King James Version takes the literal meaning of the word and says he divides it. The NIV opts for rightly handling it. The New Revised Standard Version talks about explaining it clearly. The Revised English Bible talks about keeping strictly to the true gospel. The good news opts for correctly teaching the word of truth. We're back to debating the meaning of words again. Is Paul talking about the skill and the dedication Timothy is to bring to bear on his task of teaching the word of God and applying its meaning to his congregation? Maybe so. 
in the midst of disagreements and arguments and debates about what the word of truth means, is he to toe the line in terms of making sure that what he teaches is strictly in accordance with orthodox understanding, as far as that was defined and understood in that day? Was he just to be straight down the line in terms of his teaching about the truth, not skipping over or minimalizing unpalatable aspects? Just give it to them straight, we say, don't we? Don't mess around. Don't kind of try and skirt around the difficult bits. Tell it straight, without compromise, without any deviation from the truth. Is that what he's been told to do? Give it to them straight. Or is it not really about teaching at all? Is Paul telling him to follow the word of truth closely in terms of his own conduct? So there's no deviation between what he says and how he lives. That's another possible way of understanding the phrase. Like all of us, he's called to practice what he preaches. Maybe there is no single correct interpretation. But the Holy Spirit has the power to take one of those possible understandings of the text and apply it to our hearts. And sometimes that's precisely what he does. But whatever line of interpretation we might be inclined to follow, the gist of the opening part of the verse is crystal clear. Make every effort to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. In a church context where people were arguing about the meaning of Scripture, where loyalties were divided, Paul says to Timothy, the only approval you need is the approval that comes from God. That's what counts. For myself, as a teacher in the church, if I start to teach what I think people are going to want to hear to win their approval, I end up losing my integrity and I'm no longer honouring the God I'm called to serve. And for all of us, the temptation can cross our path to compromise on what is right or true in order to be accepted by other people, in order to be popular, in order to avoid standing out from the crowd. That's the nature of peer pressure. And so we all need to heed Paul's exhortation to make sure it's God's approval that we should seek wholeheartedly so that we don't need to be ashamed as we apply the word of truth to every aspect of our lives. What's God look for from us? He looks for people who will read the scriptures in an honest search for the word of truth that they contain. He looks for people who will allow their understanding and lifestyle to be governed by the truths that we find in these pages. People who won't twist or distort the meaning of Scripture to suit their own purposes or agendas. And he looks for people who will make it their aim to live life in such a way that when we come before the judge of all the earth, we won't need to hang our heads in shame because of the way we've lived or the things we've done. But on the contrary, we can come before him with confidence because we've sought to honour him in all that we've said and all that we've done. And we've put our trust in the word of truth, which is the gospel of grace that we're forgiven through Jesus Christ our Lord. At the end of his life, Paul could look back over how he'd lived. And honestly, he felt he'd passed the test. I fought the good fight, he said. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. 
Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who've longed for his appearing. We are called, we are invited, we are encouraged to fix our eyes on that goal and do our very best to present ourselves to God as those of whom he will approve. Workers who have no need to be ashamed because we have lived our lives in accordance with the word of truth.